Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Loeb. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, well, you can grab a Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you can find that on page 988. 988. As you can probably tell, we are approaching the end of our study through Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica. And as we've seen in previous studies, Paul tends to end his letters with a series of rapid-fire instructions for the life of the church. And so he'll say, do this, do that, do this, don't do that, just one after the other. And they usually aren't structured in any particular way, which makes it somewhat difficult to organize them into neat and tidy sermon chunks. Uh, but we're going to work our way through them as best we can as we embark on the beginning of the end. And this morning we're going to look at Paul's instructions for navigating relationships uh, with people both within and outside of the church. And so we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're going to pick up in verse 12. Paul writes, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And so as we get into Paul's final instructions, he begins uh, by addressing the Thessalonians' relationship towards those who are in church leadership. Now, we've already established at the beginning of our series that Paul's time in Thessalonica was cut short because of persecution. And the fact is that uh, his ministry there was probably so short that he didn't have time to establish permanent leadership in the church. And so even under normal circumstances, Paul and his team would not be in a particular area forever. Right? And so each individual church needed its own leadership who would be able to lead the church into the future once they were gone. And we've seen both in the book of Acts and in his letter to Titus that Paul's practice was to appoint qualified men in every church to serve as pastors or as elders or overseers, as the New Testament frequently refers to them. And so presumably one of Timothy's priorities when he went back to check on the church was to appoint elders in this church who would be able to continue leading the church into the future. And now Paul gives the church instructions for how to relate to those leaders. He writes, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And I have to tell you up front, this is a challenging topic for me to preach about, not because it's difficult to understand in any way, but simply because I think it inevitably comes across as somewhat self-serving. Right? So, uh, Paul says to respect your pastors, and I am your pastor, and so you should listen to what I say, and you should think about how wonderful I am, and you should respect me. All right, so, it, it feels a little awkward to talk about this, to be honest with you. Nevertheless, uh, this is God's Word, and so we're going to receive it this morning in the same way that the Thessalonians did 2,000 years ago. 
So for starters, I want us to see the three characteristics of pastoral ministry that Paul highlights here. First of all, we see in the middle of verse 12 that pastors labor among their members. So the word for labor here refers to to hard, strenuous work. And so you might get the picture in your mind of of a construction worker or or some other kind of blue-collar job. For pastors, this kind of labor is not physical in nature. It's spiritual. So on on a regular basis, it involves diligently studying to understand God's Word so that they can turn around and teach it to others. It involves meeting with people throughout the week for personal discipleship and member care, thinking and and praying through various areas of administration and planning. Then occasionally, it involves crisis management, conflict resolution, navigating a global pandemic, and so on and so forth. So a, a good pastor is consistently thinking about, praying for, meeting with, teaching and equipping his people. It's not physically exhausting, but if it's done well, it is mentally, emotionally, and spiritually taxing. It is hard work. Paul indicates here that pastors should give everything that they have in their work of helping their people to follow Jesus. Secondly, Paul refers to the fact that pastors are those who are over you in the Lord. And this gets at the fact that pastors are in a position of authority. God calls pastors to lead their churches, to guide and direct them according to his word. Pastors set the tone for what a church is going to do and how it's going to do it. They counsel and apply God's word to individual members and to the church as a whole. And in a sense, they represent the Lord himself. As I mentioned a moment ago, one of the titles that is sometimes used of pastors in the New Testament is overseer. And that gets to the the supervisory role that pastors have in the life of the church. Then finally, Paul describes pastors as those who admonish you. And the word admonish refers to a, a gentle correction when something is wrong. And so it involves one person gently, lovingly coming alongside another person when something that they are believing or doing is out of step with the gospel. It's, it's wrong. And then urging them to get back on the right track again. And so if, if a pastor sees one of his members going the wrong way, he's responsible for going after them and bringing them back again, much like a shepherd would go after one of his sheep. Pastors admonish their members when needed. We're going to come back to that concept again in a few minutes. But first, having established the scope of pastoral ministry, let's take a look at how Paul calls the Thessalonians to respond to their pastors. First of all, at the beginning of verse 12, he asks them to respect their pastors. And this calls the members of the church to acknowledge and to recognize the God-given authority that pastors have in the church. And so the, the reality is that pastors are sinful. They are imperfect and they make mistakes. At least your pastor does. Right? But in so much as they are seeking to follow the Lord and to lead the church according to his word, they should have the genuine respect of their people. And then secondly, in verse 13, Paul tells the Thessalonians to esteem their pastors in love. 
which refers to to admiration or appreciation of them. And and the adverb that we translate here as very highly is a really interesting word. It's actually almost a nonsense word. It's a word for much that has two superlative prefixes attached to it. So, So Paul says to do this, something to the effect of a whole lot super all the time, so to speak. And we just reduce that down to very highly for simplicity's sake. And beyond thinking highly of them, the point here is that members should follow the lead of their pastors. You'll notice that Paul says to do this because of their work. Because of what pastors do, what we talked about just a moment ago, members should follow their lead. The author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 13 that that pastors are those who are keeping watch over the souls of their members and that they will give an account to the Lord on the last day for how they did that. It's It's a sober reality, a sober task. And the gravity of that role, because of the gravity of that role, the author of Hebrews calls members to follow their leaders. He even uses the terms of submission and obedience. And so the bottom line, at least as I have often heard it said, is that churches need to have leadership that is trustworthy, and they need to have members who are willing to trust. Churches, if they're going to be healthy and, and operate the way God expects them to, need to have leadership that is trustworthy, and they need to have members who are willing to trust. You have to have both of those. First of all, churches need to have leadership that is trustworthy. The fact is that who your pastor is, is a big deal. That who you are going to allow to be the primary spiritual influence in your life matters. It's really an understatement. It matters a lot. And this is why Paul gives such specific qualifications for what to look for in a pastor in his letters to Timothy and to Titus. This is a serious responsibility, and you don't just want anybody to be doing it. And so we need to have leaders who are trustworthy. But then assuming that we do, we need to be willing to trust them and to follow their lead. The fact is you could have Billy Graham for your pastor, but if a church is not willing to follow their leaders, then it's not going anywhere. So we need both of these things. We need to to aim to have leaders who are trustworthy and members who are willing to trust. And after addressing how to relate with church leadership, Paul moves on to give instructions about how members should relate to one another, beginning at the very end of verse 13. And so we'll pick up there again. Paul writes, Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle." Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. And so moving on, Paul gives instructions for how members should relate to other members within the church. First of all, at the very end of verse 13, he writes, Be at peace among yourselves. Christians are people of peace. First and foremost, we have peace with God because of Jesus. The Holy Spirit produces the fruit of peace in our lives, and that peace is supposed to be reflected in our relationships with each other inside the church. As we said a couple of weeks ago, a healthy church should have diversity in it. There are differing ages, there are different 
educational levels. There are different cultural backgrounds. There's different socioeconomic levels, right? And, and different personal preferences. And all of these factors give us plenty of opportunities to try to throw our elbows around and try to get what we want exactly the way that we want it, whatever that means for everybody else. Right? But the church is supposed to be characterized by peace. In Ephesians 4, we find that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And drawing from our understanding of what love is, love puts the needs of others before our own desires. It is willing to sacrifice for the benefit of the other person if necessary. And the truth is that if every believer did that, took that command to heart and put it into practice, then our churches would be characterized by a supernatural peace that would compel the watching world to consider the power of the gospel. Then in verse 14, Paul gives instructions for interacting with three different types of church members, those who are idle, those who are faint-hearted, and those who are weak. So hopefully, under normal circumstances, we are, are, are generally healthy, spiritually speaking, growing and maturing in our faith. But from time to time, uh, we may get off track and find ourselves stuck in one of these other categories. And so Paul gives us guidance for how to respond to members in each of these different situations. And so first of all, Paul addresses those who are idle. Now the word idle has a wide semantic range. It can refer to a soldier who's out of step with the rest of his unit. It can refer to someone who refuses to abide by the guidelines of a particular group or organization. Or it can even just refer to someone who is lazy uh, or who is disruptive in a particular circumstance. And so it's, it's very difficult to narrow down specifically what Paul is talking about here. On the other hand, it's, it's also possible that Paul chose this word specifically because it has such a wide application in referring to someone who's not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And, and in fact, that's actually what I think he's getting at here. The idol refers to members of the church who aren't doing what they should be doing in some way, which also means more than likely that they are doing things that they shouldn't be doing. In my experience, those two things tend to go together. And so this is referring to, to people who are caught up in a pattern of sin, whatever sin that might be, and probably with a certain sense of apathy about it. And so this is just how it is, and, and I'm not really trying to do anything about it. I'm, I'm not seeking to grow or to get help or to do whatever I need to do to get back on the right track. And when it comes to those who are idle, Paul tells the Thessalonians to admonish them. As we saw a moment ago, admonishment is a loving, gentle correction of something that is wrong. When someone uh, that, that we know is, is believing or doing something that is wrong. And we, what we see here is that while church leadership may have the primary responsibility for admonishing those under their care, God actually expects the entire church to exercise the ministry of admonishment. And so perhaps you might say, hey, I've noticed that, that you've seen really short-tempered lately. Well, what's going on? How can I help you? 
Or, or hey, I, I've, I've consistently heard you gossiping about that other church member lately. What's going on with that? Or perhaps you might say, hey, we haven't seen you at church in a while. And I know that we're, we're navigating a, a global pandemic right now, but, but the pictures that I see of you on Facebook, they make it look like it's not really keeping you from doing anything else. And so what's the deal with that? Is there something else going on? And it's important when we talk about admonishment that we remember and always keep in mind that the goal of admonishment is redemptive. Right? We don't admonish one another in order to shame or to belittle people. We're trying to help them experience the joy that only comes by being obedient to the Lord. And so when we see brothers or sisters who are going in the wrong way, we go after them to bring them back again. We admonish them. Next, Paul refers to those who are faint-hearted. And again, this is a broad term that could refer to any number of possible issues that cause people to feel like giving up. And so perhaps some of the Thessalonians had become fearful in the face of persecution. Or maybe there were some who were discouraged because of their ongoing battle with sin. Maybe there were some people who just felt overwhelmed with all of the stress and anxiety in their life. Or people for, for, who, for, for whatever reason felt like they were just barely hanging on to their faith. And Paul says to encourage the faint-hearted. Right? We need to be on the lookout for fellow members, for our brothers and sisters who are struggling in various ways and seek to encourage them. We need to remind them of God's love for us in the gospel. We need to point them to God's promises for us in his word. We need to, to identify and celebrate the evidence of God's work and grace in their life. One author has described encouragement as adrenaline for the soul. And an encouraging word at the right moment can give people the boost that they need to keep going. And that's what Paul calls us to here. Finally, Paul refers to those who are weak. And once again, this is a word with, with a wide application. It can refer to any number of things, possibly with a good bit of overlap, with the idea of being faint-hearted. And so whether this is physical, emotional, or spiritual, there may be members among us who are weak. Paul tells the Thessalonians that the appropriate response to the weak is to help them. Right? Whatever the need is, we should look for practical ways to assist them, to help them with it. Right, this is what it means for us to bear one another's burdens. When one of our members is struggling, we are responsible for rallying around them and helping them uh, to get through it. And then at the, ver at the end of verse 14, Paul tells the Thessalonians to be patient with them all. Patience refers to the ability to endure uh, difficult or undesirable circumstances without losing our composure. And we oftentimes need patience in our relationships with one another. And depending on the situation, it can be tempting to get frustrated with those who are idle. Or perhaps to feel drained by those who are faint-hearted. Or, or to look down on those who find themselves weak. Right? But Paul says that our interactions with one another should be characterized by patience. A willingness to endure and bear with one another. And, and again, this is what love is. It is a commitment to another person. 
Right? So things may not be as they should be in your life right now. But I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be right here. I'm committed to you. And I'm going to walk with you through this until we both get to the other side. Right? In God's providence, the sanctification process in our lives often works more slowly than we would like it to, both in ourselves and in others. And so we should be willing to walk with one another patiently through failures and through hardships. And then Paul gives one final instruction, at least the last instruction we're going to cover this morning, uh, that addresses our relationships with, with all people as we look at verse 15. And so we'll read that uh, as our final verse. He writes, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And so as we move into verse 15, Paul gives one last instruction for our relationships. He writes, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now, even people who aren't Christians are usually familiar with Jesus' teaching about turning the other cheek. All right? Christians, by definition, uh, among other things, are people who do not seek revenge against someone who has wronged them. And man, that is hard. That cuts against everything that is natural in our hearts. All right? The essence of love is a commitment to seeking what is good for the other person. And nothing tests that commitment like someone who does us wrong in some way. Right? But not only are, are, are we to not seek revenge, Paul says that we are also actively to do good towards those who wrong us. And man, that is even harder. Right? Not only am I, am I not supposed to retaliate, but I'm actually supposed to, to do good towards someone. Now, on the one hand, while this is hard we're usually okay with doing it as long as the other person is someone that we consider to be on our team. Right? So, so perhaps uh, Rebecca and I get into an argument and we say things in a moment of anger that, that hurt each other. Well, okay, that hurt. But we both know very much, without any doubt, that we love each other. And so we apologize, we confess to one another, we forgive, and we move on. Or, or perhaps Zach and I are in the office together and, and he says something offhand without thinking about it and, and it hurts. And so again, this, this hurts. But again, I know Zach. He's one of my very best friends. And I know deep down that he would never do anything intentionally to hurt me. And so again, I process it, I move forward. And that's, that's that. But you'll notice that Paul says, do good to one another, and to all. And so it's, it's one thing to forgive and to seek the well-being of someone who's hurt me when I consider them to be on my team. But what about when the other person is not someone that I consider to be on my team? Or for the Thessalonians, what if, what if the other person is someone who's actively trying to persecute you? What if the other person is, is seeking to harm your family? And what, if, what if this other person uh, very much wants to see you dead? This is where it gets super hard. In fact, I would say this is impossible, at least without the help of the Holy Spirit. 
And so we, we've seen several times that Christians are called to love all people. And, and, and we need to understand, this is where a solid understanding of love is so important, because we, we need to recognize that we're not necessarily called to feel warm and fuzzy towards everyone, right? Which, which that's good, because we're not going to feel warm and fuzzy towards everyone, particularly people who are trying to hurt us. Right? But we are, we are called to do and to act towards others in whatever is for their best interest, right? And which means we don't seek to harm them in any way. And again, it's, it's not because they deserve this. It's because God has loved us when we did not deserve it. And he sent Jesus to die on the cross in our place so that we could be forgiven of our sin. And now we are called to reflect his self-sacrificing love to the rest of the world. Now again, this is really hard. And that's another reason why God gave us the church. So you'll notice here that he doesn't say, don't repay anyone evil for evil. He says, see that no one repays evil for evil. Now, this is yet another responsibility that we have for one another as fellow members of our church. Along with admonishing the idle, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, we are to look out for each other when one of us has been wronged and intervene if necessary. So you may say, hey, I saw what just happened out there. Or, or I heard what she just said to you. So let's take a moment to pray together right now and ask the Lord to help us to forgive and to do good towards this person. All right, a task like this is often too much for us to do on our own. And so the Lord calls us to help one another in this way, as he does in all of these ways that we've seen this morning, as we've been seeing over the last several weeks and being reminded the shape of the Christian life is communal. Right? We need each other. And so in our passage this morning, we find Paul's final instructions to the Thessalonians in terms of their relationships with one another and with those outside the church. And we should honor our leaders. We should seek to help one another follow Jesus better. We should strive for peace with all people. And in, in terms of application, there is so much that we could say. I imagine we're going to have a, a very solid Q&A time tonight. But let me, in closing, just throw out a couple of things for, for you to think about briefly. First of all, I want to say how much I love you and, and how much I appreciate you. Being the pastor here at First Baptist Church Loeb is an honor and it is a privilege. Uh, it has hard days, like every job does, to be sure, but so many of our members, so many of you consistently encourage me. And I want to, to commend you for that and thank you for that. And, and it, it is such a joy to be the pastor here. And, and yes, I would like to take a Hawaiian vacation, but if you would really like to support me better, then can I simply ask you to pray for me? Would you pray that the Lord will consistently give me wisdom, that, that he will enable me to understand his word accurately so that I can lead our church in a way that honors his desires. 
Would you pray that the Lord would continue to be at work in my heart to make me the pastor that he has called me to be? The the best thing that you could ever do for me is to go to the Lord on my behalf. And I know that so many of you already do that, and I want to thank you for it and encourage you to continue doing it. But secondly, this morning, perhaps you know someone, another member of our church, who is idle, or who is faint-hearted, or who is weak in some way. And so in in response to our text this morning, you need to reach out to them in, in the way that Paul outlines here in our passage. Or maybe you realize that you are the one who is idle or faint-hearted or weak, and you need to reach out and ask someone else to come alongside you. And so you may find one or two people in our membership who you trust, and just tell them, hey, if you ever notice something about me that seems off to you, would you please come tell me about it so that I can fix that? You know, all of us have blind spots in our life. All of us have weaknesses and needs, and we need each other if we're going to follow Jesus faithfully. And sometimes we don't do that because it feels kind of awkward to enter into that space. And so one of the best ways to take out that awkwardness is simply to invite other people to do this for you and then to, to, uh, to return the favor. Right, and so p- perhaps there's someone this morning that you need to forgive or someone that you need to confess to and, and apologize to in seeking to be at peace with one another. There, there may be any number of applications to the instructions that Paul gives us this morning. But whatever the case may be, let's embrace God's design for our relationships. Let's pray together.